You're listening to Eco Thoughts, a podcast expanding the conversation on the biodiversity and climate crisis with aesthetic, ethical, historical, and cultural perspectives. This episode is a continuation of the previous one, where the American philosopher Judith Butler gave a lecture on climate sorrow. You should definitely listen to that first, if you haven't already. After the lecture, Butler is joined by associate professor at the University of Copenhagen, Mikkel Krause-Fransen, and their conversation starts like this. Okay, uh, before we begin, I would just like to say, wow, there are a lot of people here. It's so nice to see you all. And also that we have talked before in December 2020, or in fact, on Zoom. I was in Aalborg, you were not, (laughs) because of the pandemic. Uh, And there we had a chance to talk under the headline, The Culture of Grief, about how your work on grief had been with you since the very beginning, from the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, to your work on gender and sexuality in the 90s, to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the politics of mourning in the early aughts, to the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, in recent years, and all the losses and the deaths, all too many losses, all too many deaths in the US and around the world. And we had an occasion to talk a little bit about global warming and grief. And today we have invited you and you gracefully accepted the invitation to talk even more about precisely that topic. And that pleases me for many reasons, and one of them being that I myself work a little bit on these issues. Ecological grief as defined as grief directly related to environmental losses that you also talked about, losses of land, of nature, of species, of human and non-human life. And of course, I mean, losses is part of being human, you might say, a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances. And in that sense, grief is a function of life. But as you have also shown, the opposite is also true, that life is a function of grief. And you might even go further and say that, that loss is sort of the cost of connecting or being connected to what is not you. So I'm really glad that we have a chance to talk about this more thoroughly today. And you have already done so. And of course, you might say that there are losses and then there are losses. What I mean by that is that there are the losses that are part of being human and that are natural. And then you have the losses that are not natural nor necessary, but the direct result of decisions made in boardrooms and parliaments and the actions made by fossil fuel companies and so on and so forth. And those are the losses that we're dealing with when we're dealing with climate sorrow. My first question would be for you to repeat, basically. What is it that you consider to be specific about ecological loss and climate sorrow, for instance, compared to losses in relation to wars or losses related to pandemic, if it even makes sense to speak of a difference? So just not getting to the bottom of the problem, because it is as most problems, bottomless, but but sort of scratching the surface of the specificity of climate sorrow. Let me just say two things about your first remarks, and then I'll answer this last important question. Thank you. Thank you for helping to bring me here and to helping to bring my work into Danish, and I'm very grateful to you and also to your longstanding thinking about these issues, Mikael and Alfred Scholt both have been working on grief in ways that have been very engaging for me, and they have been very kindly engaging my work. So thank you. 
maybe even before the AIDS crisis. Of course, I come from a Jewish background, and my grandparents' siblings were all annihilated by the Nazis. So I grew up with a sense of an enigmatic and unfathomable set of losses, and, and also with rituals of mourning that, that seemed to be very important to the very, <laughs> how do I put it, um, the very closed Jewish community that I was part of. So that was important to me, and I learned some things from that, but I also came to reject some things, like how, how mourning can turn into nationalism, for instance, <laughs> or colonization, or things like that. But also, is it the case that we have to be related to what is not ourselves in order to feel loss? Can we also lose our own capacities and our former selves? I mean, I think as somebody who's aging, I no longer have the capacities I once had in certain aspects of life, and people who have various disabilities also feel, I think, forms of loss, depending on how the disability was acquired or whether it was acquired. So we can become strange to ourselves as we lose our own capacities, maybe even objects for ourselves in an odd way. And maybe we also, in time, can lose the capacity to feel, even the capacity to grieve depending on what we have been through and whether we have passed through trauma. So those are just two random thoughts I thought were worth offering. Obviously, climate catastrophe resituates the human as one form of life among many and among many living processes and biospheres. So there is no way to deny the interconnectedness of human life with all life because the destruction of the very conditions of life makes us mindful or should make us mindful of that interconnectedness. It's not just my life or human life, it is all life. And it is the absolute interdependency of life forms upon each other, which is also brought to the fore. So I think we actually have to affirm that radical displacement of the human, even as we experience it as human, as a way of trying to fathom an unprecedented kind of loss, the loss of the condition of life itself. Extinction is not this or that loss, although the extinction of this species, the extinction of that species. But if the extinction of life forms as such is the ultimate end of climate destruction, then it is the condition of life and the future of life. That is unprecedented, which is why we need new ways of thinking, of making, of doing politics and, and of grieving. So in a way, and to go back to Hannah Arendt, that specific loss has also become part of the human condition in a way, even if it's not entirely human. The human condition is being undone yeah. by the conditions of life. Yeah. And she made an error, <laughs> rather decisive one, in saying that animals and humans mm -hmm. had to be kept distinct and that mere life would never be a proper object for politics. It didn't have the value that human action has. So her anthropocentrism would have to be undone for her to become useful. But her emphasis on the unprecedented is helpful. Her emphasis on forms of gathering in relationship to unprecedented challenges or crimes. And I think we can describe climate catastrophe as criminal. It's like the ultimate crime against not just humanity, but all living forms. So how do we judge that? How do we assess that? I think she did have ways 
of offering us an approach to judging the unprecedented crime. She had Nuremberg in mind, but we have other kinds of atrocities that are currently happening. But I think we would have to reject the anthropocentric ontology, and I think they are separable. Hearing you speak today reminded me or made me realize how your thinking is rhythmic. It's made up of rhythms. But of course, it's not only rhythms. There are also concepts involved, right? And, and two of the central ones are interdependency and relationality. And I would like you to expand on why and how that is a challenge to a certain type of liberal version of the self-reliant, autonomous subject when emphasizing relationality and interdependency. Individualism has always been something of a lie. But we were fed it. <laughs> I was fed it. No one's born an individual. Cavarero says that each of us have singularity, but that doesn't mean we have individuality. I like that distinction. Um, to become an individual means becoming individuated, and that means being individuated from something or some set of relations. And so classically, in psychoanalysis at least, the process of individuation is the process of breaking dependency, becoming more autonomous. And the ego psychologists have been guilty of complicity with classical political liberalism in this regard. I do think that the fact of the matter is that we never stop being dependent on each other and infrastructures of basic care, like infrastructures of food, infrastructures of shelter, infrastructures that secure that the air is breathable, that the water is drinkable. Our reproduction of our lives depend on not just infrastructures, but entire economic systems that secure those basic conditions for the reproduction of life. And I think, you know, we also know that there can be damaging infrastructures. Infrastructures are not always good. They can also do damage systematically. So we would be very foolish to think that any individual is self-reliant or can overcome dependency. In fact, our dependency is much more vast than any theory of individualism can ever concede. I think that's also why I might struggle to breathe under an asthmatic condition, <laughs> but if I'm struggling to breathe certain kinds of air with asthma, let's say, other people are too, because other people have asthma, <laughs> and either the air is breathable for people with asthma or it's not. And I think also people get asthma by being exposed to certain kinds of pollutions over time and being steadily exposed to certain kinds of toxins. We can think about those situations. They implicate us in a wider world, in the elements of life, but also in the social and economic arrangements that either secure the conditions of livability or damage them. So, as I said, I think individualism is a lie. I think the two questions, for me at least, follow from your answer there. And one of them relates to gender, because with that version or that liberal lie of individualism, that would also be a lie about gender, right? I mean, because that version of the individual will also typically be a white, able-bodied subject that is the center of universe in a way. Um, for instance, when you say that, and I quote, that we are born as helpless creatures into a world defined by radical dependency, a state that never leaves us, but rather intensifies through our lives. Mm. And when you write that loss makes a tenuous we of us all, and that in grief we find ourselves fallen. 
And when you emphasize relationality and interdependency, precarity also and vulnerability, when you do that, you also seem to deconstruct a certain liberal normative narrative, phallic story, uh, Ursula Le Guin would uh, probably say, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. so that would be my question about yeah. gender. All right. And, and, and oh, of so course, you're talking last, about masculinity. I'm talking about masculinity. Well, you got to say it. Okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I was just trying to, yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about men. I'm talking about masculinity, but I'm also... No, it's not men. I know, I know. But I know, but I'm also referring back to your talk last night, where you also posed the question in the very title, who's afraid of gender? And I think there's also an aspect here that relates to that specific question. I mean, I do think there's a masculine norm that is part of classical liberalism and is also part of ego psychology that prizes independence over dependency and that seeks to overcome dependency in efforts to establish, I think, a spurious uh, notion of independence. Okay. And especially if dependency is understood as dependency on the maternal or on women or something like that, then certainly the raging ambivalence one sees in relation to the maternal or those on whom one is hopelessly dependent (laughs) only exists really among those who think that dependency can and should be overcome in the name of some notion of self-sufficiency. But here again, it's not men. It's, It's a norm of masculinity, which luckily has been changing. And I think that something called men, sociologically considered, is being socially and historically recreated all the time. And in relation to masculine norms, but sometimes against them and sometimes reproducing them in new directions. So men, in my view, have never been the problem. But when you talked about, you know, petrocultures, there are also scholars who talk about petromasculinity and also a kind of nostalgia or anxiety about fossil fuels and flying and flying stakes and, you know, all the losses that they perceive to be real, right? I mean, those masculine ideals. You know, I'm, I'm really old school here. 35 years ago, I said something that I guess I still believe and probably is no longer accepted. But I do think that masculine ideals have and norms have enormous power in the world. And when they're embodied, they're particularly horrible. But they do have to be embodied, you know. And when they are embodied, they can also change. And luckily, the difference between the norm and the embodiment is, for me, a critical one. It means that that those who are assigned male at birth and stay with that assignment, or those who acquire that assignment in time, are, can and do reproduce masculinity and contest those norms, and that the incommensurability between the norm and the embodiment is actually crucial for its rearticulation in time. But you know what? I think that's just old. That's an old song. <laughs> it was a good song when it was. Going back to what you said a bit earlier about damaging infrastructures um, and the question still of relationality and interdependency, my question in terms of the damaging infrastructures would be something that I tend to describe as interdependency is not idyllic, and relationality is not rosy, meaning, as you also talked about previously tonight or this afternoon, the instances where the intimate relations can be toxic, 
go to the Cancer Alley in Louisiana, go to all over the world. You also have those situations. In some theories, you get versions of entanglement or relationality that sort of say, and I'm simplifying here, that entanglement is good and disentanglement is bad. So if only we could get more entangled and more intertwined in the web of life. Um, oh, I see the problem. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, uh, many. Good. <laughs> I think interdependency is hell. I think it's really rough. It's full of conflict. It's full of antagonism. It's full of murderous wish and desires to flee. I think um, living in a certain climate where you are subject to certain kinds of destructive processes is horrible, but you can't jet away from the earth. And if you do jet away, you're probably polluting it more. So Anit Singh talks about a situation in Indonesia where an entire irrigation network was built which was supposed to supply water, but actually what it does is periodically flood certain regions to the point where it's driving certain life forms into extinction. Okay, so that's bad infrastructure. I think we really have to decide on the forms. We have to discover forms of interdependency that make life more livable and not just for human lives. And we have to be able to judge what is more livable and what is less livable. I mean, there are forms of unbearable dependency under colonialism and in prison. And I mean, those are forms of dependency that have been obviously a term that was used by colonial policymakers to rationalize the subordination of colonized peoples. So you might think that throwing off dependency is great and that independence is good, but even once independence is Establish the question is, what's the form of life? What's the form of living together? It seems to me that interdependency ideally contains within itself a principle of reciprocity and equality. And I would go so far as to say that we need to think interdependency in light of inhabitable life and livable life as well as equality in order to make it into something that can work to counter the organization of life that is propelling life itself towards destruction. Do we also need to think about it in terms of intergenerationality? And the reason I'm asking this this question is that when the latest uh, IPCC synthesis report came out, there was this horrible graphic, basically this horrible image which was widely circulated on social media where you have an arresting visualization of global future warming in the context of different generations. So it shows if you're 70 years old in 2030, the world will be this hot probably. But if you're 30 years old in 2050, it will be this much harder. And if you're 70 years old in 2070, it will be this much harder and redder and redder and redder and so on. So I'm just thinking a lot about that question of generations and intergenerationality. I would just invite you to speak to that. I mean, we also have all the statistics saying that, well, 55% of young people basically believe that the planet is fucked uh, in so many words, and the 38 or 39% of young people who are also considering not having children because of they're realistic about the present state of the world, but also its future. In general, I want to say this, that yes, young people are suffering. They, many 
if not most young people, have a sense that there may not be a future for them. The only young people I know who are interested in the future are working for Google or Yahoo and, and accumulating capital because they can only imagine accumulating more. And accumulation becomes the idea of the future. But if you have unpayable debt, then the future is already just, I mean, your debt's going to outlive you. So depending on where you are in that. But the climate catastrophe is, of course, and I also think the acceleration of war and where I live, the gun violence and police violence, I mean, there's so many things that have plunged younger people into uh, radical despair about the future. I think that's right. I worry why we talk about generations. I'm not sure the generational discourse serves us because it strikes me as centralizing reproduction in imagining different ages. <laughs> so we could say older people feel this way or maybe younger people feel this way. But, I mean, for many decades now, feminists have been arguing you don't have to have children to have a perfectly great life. And a lot of people don't have children and have perfectly great lives. <laughs> and people with children wish they didn't have them, including my mother, which she says to me all the time. <laughs> Age 93. Okay. So I don't want reproductive desire to be the gauge of despair because it's always been the case that reproductive desire is either there or not there. And I don't think we should judge people for being engaged in it or not engaged in it because there are different ways to live and it's probably good for the future of the earth that some folks are deciding to hang with the animals instead. <laughs> so I have that, because it's just it's this sort of heteronormative model of reproductive sexuality that gets assumed in the thinking of generations. I, I, it really is to the side of what you're asking. No, but I don't think it is. I think it's crucial to it, but I'm also thinking that maybe that way of thinking in terms of anticipatory grief that you also addressed and yeah. thinking about future generations it doesn't necessarily have to be your generation or your children. But maybe young people can be young people first and foremost without necessarily being somebody's children. Yeah. Yeah. And old people can be old people without necessarily first and foremost being somebody's parent or grandparent. In other words, we can refer to age differences without immediately assimilating that age difference into a familial structure. Maybe they're in those familiar structures, but maybe that's not the primary modality through which age is important. Or maybe they're outside those family structures. Maybe they don't fit in a generational line, but that doesn't make them any less important. Sorry, that was really not the... It's a really good answer, I think. And, and it brings me to... I think we're running out of time, oh, unfortunately, okay. but... That's um, for sure. That's what we've been talking about. We yeah. <laughs> and... We didn't get a chance to talk about art. Ah, yeah. Yeah, and we didn't get a chance to talk really about activism and the themes of this festival that we've been doing. It's yeah. been pedagogy, and of course, what we just talked about also yeah. relates to the question of pedagogy, yeah. which I think is one of the most crucial issues today, really. I mean, how do we go about that? I mean... Let me say one thing that I think I should have made more clear, but was just implied. You know, I actually have respect for the situationist legacy and art activism of various kinds. And I think performance art can be part of that. And performance studies and performance art has always had a critical relationship to museum spaces. So it's always interesting to me when it enters into the museum or it happens outside the museum or on the street or wherever. The proscenium can be any number of spaces. It doesn't have to be in the theater or in the museum. But I want to say that both 
anarchist traditions and situationist traditions are important to rethink. I didn't like the idea that the attribution that, oh, you folks care more about art than life, and that somehow caring about art is not the same as caring about life, because I, or maybe still feel, that I can't live without some art, which doesn't mean fabulous, iconic art, but some art practice or some aesthetic encounter. And I actually think art can be regenerative, even if in a difficult way, or put us face-to-face with the problems of, of creation in the midst of unbearable times. So I'm all for the jolt. <laughs> yeah. But I want the jolt to be sustained. I don't want it to just be this moment that then leaves us. How can that jolt become part of a transnational practice that's happening in different sites and persisting in time and will persist as long as this climate catastrophe is with us? So I just want to make clear that my commitments are there. And just one very last question. And, and I think we can transition from jolt to joy. And I, I could ask a question, and I will ask a question, about the relation between grief and hope, or the questions of desire and joy that are also part of the grieving process. You write somewhere that grief is also a process of transformation. Something is being transformed, and I mean, grief can reorient you in the world. So I was just thinking about that as a way of ending, not necessarily on a hopeful or joyous note, but also thinking about the title of your most recent book is What World Is This? But I'm thinking also that question is accompanied by another question, which is, what world do do we want? Yes, if we can still ask that question, which I hope we can. But I just want to say that, you know, a lot of grieving involves not just gathering, but music and sometimes song, sometimes prayer, sometimes rhythm. It's hard to grieve without rhythmic wailing. So rhythm and song, maybe musicality, has a relationship to grief that I think ought not to be underestimated. And in several major demonstrations over the last 20 years, including Tahrir Square and in Egypt and Taksim in Istanbul, people stood up in the middle of enraged grief with signs that said public happiness. (laughs) It's like, where did Hannah Arendt come in again? But, you know, what is that public happiness? And can those who gather to mourn and gather to resist, what is that happiness? And even in the movement for black lives, which was a mourning, mourning for not just George Floyd, but for the incredible number of uh, black people whose lives have been vanquished by police violence in the U.S. There's song, there's dance, there's music, there's grief, there's rage, there's resistance, there's, col- there's solidarity. And I think we have to remember, I mean, analytically as academics, like, oh, grief is over here and joy is here. And then, but actually, these are complicated, dynamic interrelationships, and we need to grasp the scene in both its horror and its potential. Thank you. Thank you. EcoThoughts is produced by the Center for Applied Ecological Thinking at the University of Copenhagen, Denmark. Thank you very much for listening, and please do share this with others if you liked what you heard.